Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Earlier this fall, Dr. Keith Plummer and Dr. Gregory Parker got together to record a podcast in front of a live audience during our Cairn University homecoming weekend. Dr. Plummer is the dean of the School of Divinity at Cairn University, and Dr. Parker is an associate professor teaching systematic theology. Their conversation focused on the book recently released by Dr. Parker, who translated into English for the very first time a work by Dutch theologian Herman Bovink that traces the history of Christian doctrine and church life from its origins through to the Protestant Reformation and into the early 20th century. Let's join the discussion now. Greg. Keith. It's homecoming. It is homecoming. And you are an alum, so welcome back. Thank you. But I'm really glad to welcome you to the faculty of the School of Divinity at Cairn. And before we start talking about Bob Inc., before we start talking about the, the books that you've uh, translated and edited, would you just tell us a little bit about your theological journey post-Cairn and how it is that you came to become interested in Bob Inc.? Yeah, certainly. I graduated from Cairn in 2013, went off to Carlisle, Pennsylvania to work in a church plant there and was working kind of full-time at Amazon for free in this church plant. And uh, luckily for me, there was a little reformed bookstore uh, just two blocks, or maybe not lucky for my paycheck, but luckily uh, for my interests, uh, just two blocks down the street from where I was living. And so over a four-week time period, I acquired all of Bobbing's dogmatics visits to this uh, little bookstore, primarily because he had just come out in English. Uh, his reformed dogmatics were translated from 2008 to 2013. And so I was aware that he existed, and I was aware that I was interested in Reformed theology and thought, Bavink seems to be someone I, I might have an interest in reading. So I, I really started reading him uh, to bolster my, my theological interests uh, while I was serving in this church plant, and then went off to seminary, up to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, just north of Boston. And uh, during that time, well, Gordon-Conwell is an interdenominational uh, school, so they really feature uh, kind of an a la carte way of doing theology, you might say, uh, and then they let you kind of know what, what's out there in Christianity, the diversity of Christianity. Um, at the time, this really frustrated me. <laughs> I kind of wanted to know what, what should I believe, what should I think, uh, and so it was at that time that I really started reading Bob Inc. with some serious uh, rigor and kind of, I guess, twisted the arms of a few professors up there uh, to convince them to let me read Bob Inc. instead of uh, other texts, and they were happy to oblige. Ended up writing a paper on uh, Bavink's epistemology, theory of knowledge is what epistemology is, so his theological epistemology, so what does God have to do with uh, how we come to know things. And some theologian named James Eglinton had written this book on Bavink's organic motif, and so I was looking at his epistemology through the lens of the organic motif and getting really interested in, in this Bavink guy, and uh, was downloading some papers online, and I must have upset someone at Edinburgh because I got an email from a scholar over there who said, why are you looking into Bavink's epistemology? And I said, well, I'm writing this little paper for ideally ETS. Uh, and he said, well, this is my dissertation, so you should probably stop. <laughs> um, he actually wasn't quite that forceful. He said, you know, you can keep researching this, but don't publish it or else I'm going to have to tell you that where you're wrong. And I was like, all right, fair play. 
So then he, uh, this is Nathaniel Sutanto down at RTS now. Uh, he then encouraged me to get in contact with, with James Eglinton, uh, who was my doctoral supervisor in, in Edinburgh. And so through that process, started thinking about the potential of doing a PhD. Uh, I was in the middle of my MDiv. I liked the idea of the pastor theologian, a pastor who could have a rich theology to bring into the pulpit and to bring into uh, just everyday church life. And then did a THM at Gordon-Conwell on Bobbing's uh, Doctrine of Divine Simplicity, which we actually just uh, did Divine Simplicity in the Triune God class that I was uh, teach here at Cairns. So I was really pleased to have the, that THM thesis to draw upon. <laughs> Um, I don't know if the students were as pleased as I was. But, and then got, got into the PhD program and really enjoyed my time in Edinburgh, uh, getting deep into Bovink. Uh, really a special place to study Bovink right now. I think some have called it the Eglintonian school, which I don't think my advisor really likes. Tim Keller called us the Bovink mafia, which Ooh. I think has some, some hutchspah to it. Uh, uh-huh. So I like to go with that one. <laughs> bunch of theologians are studying uh, Bob Inc. over there, and it was a really fruitful uh, place to study him and get into him. And so that led me into Bob Inc. Great. When you first came across the Reformed Dogmatics, the, the four volumes, mm-hmm. did you read all of them during the church plant time? Uh, so I read a, a portion of volume one uh, and thought, this is really turgid and, and too dense, um, which would probably be my recommendation to most people is if you're going to read the Reformed Dogmatics, do not start with volume one go right into volume two. Um, and then so I kind of skipped volume one, then the, the tail end of it, and uh, got into volume two. And that was really, I really appreciated and enjoyed it at the time. But by the time I started seminary, I think I just barely finished volume two. Um, and then one, once I was there, I, I re-picked up and started back at volume one again. Oh, good. And for those who don't know, uh, Dr. James Eglinton is a renowned Bavink scholar wrote the recent biography of, of Bob Inc. pretty much is regarded as like a definitive biography on, on him and his thought. So great opportunity to study with him. You and your colleague and friend, Cam Clausing, have been busy at work in terms of translating and editing previously untranslated, at least in English, works of, of Bob Inc. And you did one on your own, which is... Um, what is Christianity? But could you situate these two volumes, Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion, which you co-edited and translated, and What is Christianity? Uh, could you maybe relate those to Reformed Dogmatics? Cameron and I met in 2018 at an ETS, and uh, we were really— And for the sake of those who don't know what ETS is. Evangelical Theological Society. Okay, um, thank you. That's where all your professors go when they have nothing else to do. <laughs> So we, we were very fond of kind of seeing collaborative work uh, from scholars that were older than ourselves. Uh, so we liked to see what Swain, Scott Swain, were doing and Michael Allen, that they were doing a lot of collaborative work. We liked that our friends uh, at, in Edinburgh, uh, Corey Brock and Nathaniel Sutanto, were doing some collaborative work. So we talked about how might we join up and do something collaborative. Cameron had been a pastor uh, for several years down in Tennessee and a missionary in Cambodia. Um, and I at the time, very much desired to be uh, in pastoral ministry. And so we thought, what if we uh, looked at Bobbink's more pastorally oriented writings? And so we were kind of kicking around and decided we'd start with Sacrifice of Praise, um, which is what we did in 2019. And once we finished that book, we had come across Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion, or what we would call as Handlighting, uh, which is the Dutch uh, short abbreviation for the title. 
it was this systematic theology for high schoolers, and we thought, oh, well, this is really neat and, and would be great for the church. Uh, so it fit kind of our vision of, of doing, highlighting p- the pastoral aspect of Bavink. And so we started translating that one. Uh, and then once we were done, I still had very much the translation itch while uh, Cam was moving to Australia. Uh, <laughs> and so he said, you take this one on your own. I said, all right, sounds good. So in relation to Reform Dogmatics, this is a, a much later work. Uh, Reform Dogmatics was really the end of uh, the 19th century uh, for the first edition, and then the second edition kind of um, trickled into the beginning of the 20th century. And so he was done working on his dogmatics, uh, and I really think he was considering how can I make this work, which uh, all the Dutch newspapers were complaining was inaccessible, accessible. How, how, what can I do to get my theology actually into people's hands and, and not stuck in an ivory tower? And so he went through the process of really distilling his work uh, significantly twice, uh, Magnalia Day and then Guidebook for Instruction in the Christian Religion. So uh, probably what I didn't highlight in my earlier lecture is it is really Bobbing's mature theological thought. Uh, he, he's not really um, doing very much ex- explorative work. Uh, there's a, you know minute details that are, are maybe different between uh, the wonderful works of God and Reformed dogmatics, but nothing really significant. And so it's just, it's more his focus on trying to make this uh, a book that my mom could read or my friends could read who haven't done uh, PhDs. And so it's, it's his aim to really to just get theology into the hands of the everyday person. What is Christianity has a, a little bit of a different focus. It's a publisher that he didn't really work a ton with. Uh, they had this series called Great Religions, and he was invited or asked to write the one on Christianity. So there were a bunch of books that were being written on uh, Buddhism and Islam and, and Judaism, and he was asked to write the, the Christianity one. Uh, his friend Snooki, or Snook Hergranya, actually wrote uh, one of the other books in the series, uh, which is a really uh, interesting little historical detail. I just really like saying Snooki, yeah. too. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and that book is about the, the essence of Christianity, which was uh, a popular theological discussion at the time. Adolf uh, von Harnack was uh, contributing to that in 1901. And so this is one of Bobbing's contributions to that discussion. Um, but it's really, for participating in a, in a heavy theological discussion, uh, that's really not his main focus. Uh, he just puts forth a very clear uh, reading of the history of Christianity and emphasizes that you really have to deal with Christianity because of its historical phenomena. That it exists means that you have to cope with it or, or deal with it in some way. And then the, the second essay in there deals more with the essence of Christianity less than the, the phenomena of Christianity itself. So they kind of pair really well together. Thanks. And when people hear guidebook for instruction being written for high school students, they need to understand that by our standards today, this book is it's still involved. Uh, what I really appreciated about it was that it was, as someone who's been through formal theological training, I still gained from it. But I also read it and I thought, I could give this to someone, and apart from the Dutch in the um, parentheses, uh, they can understand this. But he didn't hold back in terms of rigor, but it, he made it accessible. And one of the other things that I thought was it's, it's intellectually stimulating and it's devotionally kindling. I mean, there were, there were many times as I was reading through it, I was just really, really 
captivated by the beauty of God. I mean, it really provoked worship. I want to spend most of our time, if not all, talking about guidebook. And particularly, could you tell us a little bit about the influences theologically on Bavink? In the beginning of the book, you um, say that there was a heavy Augustinian influence that you see in him. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, certainly. So yeah, in, in the introduction, I, I point to two uh, kind of homages that, that Bavink makes. Uh, one is with the title. It's much closer in the Dutch, uh, but if you look at the Dutch title of Calvin's Institutes and the Dutch title of this work, uh, they're only off by one word. Uh, and so it, to me, it appears as if he's trying to tip his hat to Calvin a little bit. Like, okay, here's my, I'm being a good neo-Calvinist and I have a tradition that I'm coming from. Uh, but I think uh, throughout the book, he really draws on Augustine quite significantly. Um, I think it, it's definitely there in Reformed Dogmatics, so it's not a, a significant development in that way, um, but it certainly stands out in Guidebook. He, he begins the work uh, asking what man's highest good, in, good is, uh, and this idea of highest good is something that Augustine uh, really orbited his theology around. Uh, he talks a lot about the restlessness of man, uh, which is certainly an, an Augustinian, and even quotes Augustine, I think, on, on page two. So that's an Augustinian theme that he really draws on. Uh, and then the book really kind of is, has this whole trajectory of moving towards uh, the beatific vision in a way that I think actually mimics uh, Augustine's work, the Trinity, uh, quite significantly. The beatific vision is the, the theological idea that uh, once we pass into the great unknown, <laughs> that we will behold God uh, in some way. So it's a, the vision aspect is beholding. Uh, the beatific is that it's going to be this, this really blessed and uh, beautiful experience for us as, as creatures. Thanks. You talked about the fact that in your lecture earlier and a little bit here, you, you talked about the fact that Bavink is committed to ref, a Reformed perspective on theology. And at one point in the book, you and Cam say this, to be Reformed for Bavink requires one to continually look backward and forward, back to Scripture and the historical development of doctrine. In turning forward, one is looking at the future and addressing theology through the questions and issues of one's own age. So he always had this dual focus where he's, he constantly wants to be rooted in Scripture. And when you read the book, you see the, the numerous citations of Scripture. But he's also concerned with speaking to his age scripturally. Mm -hmm. And he's thinking forward in terms of what are some of the challenges ahead that we should be giving thought to. How do you think that he was able to avoid simply repeating what has gone before and being innovative yet still being faithful? Because I think one of the challenges or one of the temptations for people doing theology today is to be novel for the sake of novelty and then in so doing, either to make a name for themselves or um, to get notice, but how, how did he navigate between those, those two poles? Yeah, so uh, the, the basic idea is that he, he wants to build all of his theology from Scripture, uh, but he recognizes that uh, to some degree the, the worldview of the first century is not shared by uh, modern people, and so we have to think through uh, the different questions that we might have as we do theology. 
one example of this might be in his uh, Doctrine of Inspiration um, in, in Guidebook. Uh, uh, in his Reformed Dogmatics, he does not really engage with Friedrich Nietzsche, almost at all. Um, and the, that's because before the, the 20th century, uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, a different philosopher, was really uh, the, the key player that uh, everyone was engaging with. And you do see Schopenhauer all over the pages of Dogmatics. Um, but in Guidebook, uh, when it comes to his doctrine of scripture, he actually engages with Friedrich Nietzsche, which is interesting because it shows that uh, in this following the 20th century that he is still keeping up with the philosophy of his day and keeping up with what are, what are my contemporaries actually thinking about. And so he draws on uh, Nietzsche's idea of um, the inspiration of the artist or the inspiration of the philosopher to have this kind of genius idea. Uh, and he, he points to, hey, look, this, this idea is is in our contemporaries. We should not be ashamed of uh, the idea of an inspiration for our prophets or the inspiration of scripture. So I, I think for him, a lot of times it involves drawing on the philosophical categories of his day, um, but not necessarily importing the content of those categories. Uh, so he's careful to uh, make sure that Christ is the content of, of theology, uh, not philosophy, but he's comfortable in engaging with their ideas. And to some degree, Bavink would be happy that we're celebrating his books, <laughs> um, but he wouldn't want us to, to just simply read him and think, all right, now, now I've done theology. Um, theology is a, a very lively activity. Uh, it's something that still needs to be done today. In, in an early address of his on the pros and cons of uh, systematic theology, uh, he said a, a Christian dogmatics does not yet exist. Uh, and he was not saying that because he hadn't written his reform dogmatics yet. <laughs> Um, he was simply saying that the, the definitive uh, statement on who God is has not uh, been written because theology is a creaturely activity. And so therefore, uh, it, it just can't, simply can't. Right? We have an incomprehensible uh, object. Yeah, so, so for him, uh, the, the toing and froing or the looking back in both uh, futures, kind of the continued activity of the theologian. Yeah. He's got a description of the theologian as uh, one who in a real sense as a scholar taught by God, who speaks of God, about God, and for the sake of the glory of God's name. And I, I thought that that was um, priceless. He also is unique in that he was able to maintain his reformed commitments, but he was also very much concerned about the Catholicity, small c, the universality of the church. And in the introduction, you and Cam uh, say some things ab about that. Uh, that's another tension that it can be hard to hold because either we can become just dogmatic about our particular convictions as though this is the only part of the church, or we hold our convictions so loosely that we're almost afraid to have convictions for the sake of universality. Say a bit about um, what you have admired and what you have observed in him with respect to that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think uh, when I was in seminary, <laughs> I very much, uh, I wanted a, uh, a more uh, strict Bavink, you might say. Uh, and I was uh, warmly greeted with a theologian who wanted to see truth wherever it was found and beauty wherever it was found. And so as he approached uh, all the various uh, theologians that I think I was kind of taught to stay away from, <laughs> Uh, he was willing to engage them and their, their best ideas and, and see, okay, there, there's truth here. I can accept this. Uh, maybe I can't go there with them, though. 
Uh, and so I, I think there's something to learn in the ironic nature of, of the way he approached theology, that not everything uh, is something that needs to be bludgeoned. He's willing to draw lines of disagreement, certainly, um, but not everything is, is a battleground necessarily. And this shifted for him to some degree. Is his early theology was much more, uh, he wanted to uh, kind of burn some bridges. Um, I mean, he had come out of Leiden, which was this, this liberal uh, school, and he was, I think, he was aware that some of his contemporaries were nervous about him. And so one of his first addresses on the science of theology is very much like modern theology is, is not the path that we can go down. We, we can't go down that. But by the time uh, he's much more mature in his thinking with an essay like um, Orthodoxy and Modernity, he's much more willing to engage with, with others and kind of present a, uh, an ecumenical uh, Christianity. And I think to some degree this was him acknowledging the, sh the shifting of culture, uh, that you know, he really believed that uh, secularity was onsetting, and he didn't think it was helpful for uh, Christianity to continually be combative within he thought we needed to present a more unified front, even if that means we know what we think, and, and I know how I'm distinct from the theologian next to me. Um, I mean, his diaries and letters are, are filled with engagements with various theologians that are very sharp in drawing out lines of distinctions. And his, one of his best friends was um, Snooky. You have to say it again. <laughs> and Snooky was a pastor's kid who really abandoned Christianity and, and uh, sought refuge in, in Islam. And so all of his letters with Snooki are uh, opportunities for him to really be sharpening uh, his theological thinking. Uh, and he's not afraid to disagree with his friend, even though it's, it's one of his best friends. So he's, he's not afraid of disagreement. And so when I say irenic, I, I don't want us to think that, that Bobink just simply uh, collapses anytime that there's some sort of confrontation. Uh, he's very clear about what he thinks. Uh, but he's not willing to uh, look at a, a theologian and, and uh, point out disagreement and say, therefore, you know, you're not a believer, or therefore, I, I can have nothing to do with you. I, I need to disregard everything you've ever written. Uh, for him, that's just not a, a profitable way of doing theology. So, and if I can circle back to that, that quote of like, who a theologian uh, is as well, I think it actually is a, a really helpful way of imagining um, his whole theological system in a way, because I think he really formats or indexes his entire approach to theology through Romans eleven thirty six. So um, from, through, and to God, to him be the glory. And if you look back at that theologian quote, uh, really the theologian is receiving everything from God, doing theology through God, and God is receiving all the glory for uh, the theological activity. And so I, I think if you kind of step back and looked at his reform dogmatics or even guidebook, uh, you'd see Romans 11.36 all over the whole thing as a, really a, a way of approaching it. Well, let's uh, follow through with this idea of uh, something that is clear in all of his work is he has such a high regard for the exaltedness of God. The, you mentioned the incomprehensibility of God, the fact that we will never know him in fullness because we're finite we'll always be but yet he he also has a real uh, appreciation for the the imminence of god that god is is near and um one of the places that he deals with this is what in his chapter on general revelation and where he uh, is dealing with that he says revelation can be beautiful to man and have in mind his salvation it also does not have its final end in man, 
but go far beyond him. In Revelation, God composes praise for himself, glorifies his own name. Because Revelation is from and through God, it also has his glorification for its destiny and end. And that was a passage that I thought was, was beautiful because he's saying that God has a, a sincere regard and care for humanity. But unlike some of the ways that we're prone to err, he's saying, but that's not the terminus, that, that his glory is the, the terminal end. Um, as you have interacted with his thought, what have you observed, appreciated, been challenged by with, with respect to his attention to both the transcendence and the, the imminence of, of God? So his two main kind of philosophical interlocutors uh, throughout, um, more so reform dogmatics, but it does appear in a passage like this in guidebook, are a, a pantheism and, and deism. And so he was really worried about the onset of... And could you just you know, unpack those? Yeah, the onset of us collapsing God into the world, which mm -hmm. would be pantheism, that, that God is all things, you know, even this, this kind of table... And so he was worried about that, and that was actually something he was very critical of, uh, someone like, a theologian like Friedrich Schleiermacher that he really appreciated. But he thought, is a pantheist, so I need to be really careful about the way that uh, I, I engage with his thought in regards to, you know, something like creation. And what, what did he appreciate about Schleiermacher? He was really fond of, of Schleiermacher's idea of the, the feeling of absolute dependence, uh, which I think... He, he uses that language at one point. Yeah, so he uh, combines uh, kind of Calvin's seed of religion and Schleiermacher's feeling of absolute dependence, which I think Schleiermacher actually gets a really bad rap uh, for that because I think we tend to think that Schleiermacher means emotions when mm -hmm. we hear the word feeling. But he actually he doesn't mean that. Uh, he means uh, a, a precognitive, uh, so it doesn't, it's not a, a thinking thing that we're doing, a precognitive awareness uh, of God, of ourself and the world. And so Schleiermacher thinks kind of coming to an awareness of this, Precognitive awareness <laughs> uh, that we exist, that God exists, and the world exists uh, allows us to do theology. Uh, and, and Bobbing thought, hey, like this, this is a really uh, simple thing for us to acknowledge as, as humans that we are aware of God and that we actually suppress the truth when we deny that. We are aware that we exist, uh, and I know that the world is real. Uh, and so Bobbing was very fond of, of Schleiermacher in, in that sense. Um, of course, we need to be careful any time that we mention Schleiermacher, that, that Bobbing does not go all the way uh, with Schleiermacher, but especially his Christology. So, <laughs> pantheism was one thing that he wanted to avoid when doing theology, but deism was also uh, in the air. Uh, deism being uh, that God is just detached from our world, and you know, almost like a clockmaker is the typical example for, for deism, that God created the world, and now he has nothing to do with it. Uh, so God is not the world in terms of pantheism, and God is not uh, distant from the world and that he wants nothing to do with it. And, and Bobbing firmly believed that Christian theology and scripture presented us uh, really the, the best of both worlds in that uh, God is truly transcendent. He, he does not need to uh, create. He does not need to uh, have us as his creatures worship him. But also, he is near to us. Uh, and he, he desires to be with us, and he does indeed uh, love his people. And so he thought that Christian theology really, I guess, uh, thread the needle between pantheism and deism. It was true to Scripture in that way. Yeah. Another um, 
tension that he holds well is that between the absolute unknowability of God and the knowability of God. And when he's writing on, on scripture, um, he, he says, there's no book in the world that in the same manner and in the same way as Holy Scripture maintain the incomprehensibility of God, his absolute transcendence above all creatures, and at the same time combines that with the knowledge of God and the intimate relationship of the creator with his reasonable creatures. And I think that touches upon what you were just describing. Yeah, he, he really wants to emphasize that uh, Scripture is... It's it's an anthropomorphic gift, uh, you know. It's 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 God really allowing Himself to be known. It's a, a self disclosure, but it does not. Uh, God Himself is unknowable in His essence, and yeah. so God is making Himself known yeah. in Scripture. And so we we really we really need Scripture. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, if I can pick on Bobink a little bit here, he's he doesn't give us any fun. Uh, language to think through the anthropomorphization of scripture. Uh, Kuiper would be much more fun. Or even Augustine talks about scripture as being like a children's toy mm -hmm. uh, and talks about Christ as being milky for us. <laughs> uh, milky in that we can uh, actually understand who Christ is as both the Son of Man and the Son of God. So, and, and by anthropomorphic, just God's choosing to disclose truth about himself in terms in this case, in, in human terms, likening himself to, say, a father, a shepherd, a king, and so forth, but also using a whole host of metaphors and analogies to tell us things uh, about himself, but none of them which captures him, as you said, in his essence. In fact, at one point when he's talking about the essence of God, he says that God actually doesn't have a name by which we can fully name him. And yet, he calls himself and permits us to call him by many, many names. And there, if anyone hears that, he's not talking about like the covenantal name Yahweh. He's not denying that God has revealed himself with a name in that regard. But rather, there's no capturing verbally what and who God is exhaustively. Yeah, precisely. Uh, it's actually one of the interesting details about the distinction between uh, his first edition of his Reformed Dogmatics and the second edition. Uh, so unfortunately, the first edition is still in Dutch, so only me and my friends get to read it. But um, in the first edition, as he's looking at the divine attributes or who God is, uh, he does actually almost align them specifically with um, you know, divine names like El Shaddai. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in the second edition, he kind of steps back and does it by attributes. So God's uh, incomprehensibility, his independence. Uh, but yeah, really this, this idea of the divine names uh, rests on God's divine simplicity. Um, that we know God through many names uh, because we cannot uh, comprehend his, his, his unity, his oneness. And when, when it comes to the incarnation and the revelation of God in the person of Jesus, sometimes I think Contemporarily, there's an error made in terms of everything about Jesus must be true of God in his essence, losing sight of his humanity. How, if at all, did Bavink deal with that? So he talks about uh, the, the incarnation as uh, organic, um, which he, he loves this organic language. It was kind of in the air in his day. We, we probably make too much of it when coming talking about Bobbing specifically in that we say, look, Bobbing's talking about organicism. Isn't this really cool? And it is cool, but romantic philosophy was talking about organic ideas 
uh, throughout uh, the 19th and 20th century. Um, so he's not as unique uh, when it comes to the organic motif as maybe we say, uh, which I need to be careful because of my uh, supervisor or my <laughs> doctoral father uh, here so he might get upset, but yeah, James, it's fine. <laughs> uh, and so uh, he talks about uh, Christ's incarnation as organic, but this isn't a way of getting at uh, any sort of talking about the divine essence, but rather the, in the hypostatic union in Christ, uh, in the Son of Man being connected to the Son of God, we might say. The Son of Man is organic in that he can actually be known, and the Son of Man is organic in that he's the kirpunt, or the, the turning of, of time of revelation. He's the high point of Scripture, the starting point of, of revelation. He is, he is the, the ultimate uh, way for us to know who, who God is. Um, but it's, he's very careful not to suggest that God himself, so we would say the Son of God, uh, is organic. But only Christ in his servant form is organic. Because organicism implies uh, becoming or change uh, where God is immutable. God does not change. God is being for, for bobbing. Now, you and uh, Cam, in your introduction, write this. If we, as translators, had a singular goal in mind, it would be aligned with Baving's hope that he wrote in his preface that the main contents of the Christian faith might be made known to the next generation of readers. And I want to use that to transition into some questions. Uh, personally for you, what are some of the emphases of uh, Baving's theology and life that you wish to emulate in your own teaching? You're now back at Cairn. You are uh, teaching theology to young people. What, are, what is it about Bavink's life and theology that you desire to imitate, not only in the classroom, but in your, your Christian life? That's a great question, Keith, and, and probably something I need to continue to think about, but uh, maybe at least three things. One, I really do admire his irenicism, uh, that, that he is uh, not looking to make enemies every time he's doing theology, uh, but he wants to read the best of what is out there in theology and is, wants to retrieve what he can from them. Um, and I think that there's something really beautiful about that. Uh, maybe secondly, I, I do really admire his personality, maybe contrast with Kuiper, who I, I don't want to slam Kuiper, uh, by any means, but but Kuiper was much more boisterous. I think when I uh, presented Bavink and Kuiper in, in one of the classes here at Cairn, I, I pushed over a chair the first time I, <laughs> I uh, presented Kuiper to kind of... Uh, like Bobby Knight. Right, yeah, kind of yeah. like exemplify, like like Kuiper would let you know he was in the room. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't get that impression from Bavink, especially in his letters with, with his peers and friends. So he, he very much did not want to make much of himself. And I, I think uh, you're always in danger when you talk about humility. <laughs> but I, I would love if, if uh, I would embody that in some way, um, just to pursue humility. Uh, I think thirdly, uh, there's some information about what he was like as a professor in the classroom and uh, uh, from one of his stu former students. And they talked about how approachable he was, uh, that he, he knew about what was going on in culture and society and was willing to engage with them about these things. But then when it came to actually teaching, uh, he was very serious, and, and the whole uh, demeanor of the room would change. And so he was friendly and, and cordial, uh, but when it came to actually telling you about who God is, uh, he, he wanted you to know that this is a serious thing. 
Um, and so I, I would love if, if I could somehow manage to balance both. <laughs> Related. What lessons do you think Herman Bovink has for the contemporary American evangelical church? Probably maybe those first two points um, uh, just pointed in a different direction. I think American evangelicalism uh, is, is very tribalistic. Um, it always seems like we're, we're biting the hand that feeds us in every uh, theological debate. And, and that's not to say that I'm against uh, making clear what I believe theologically, um, but it seems like we're constantly headhunting in American evangelicalism. Um, and then if we do disagree with some, someone, that we can find no good in anything else that they say. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a really probably poor way of just even treating other humans. Um, but, so I think there's something to learn in, in Bovink's irenicism of that we, we can disagree with people and yet still find uh, aspects of their thought beautiful or uh, worth appropriating. And then uh, maybe secondly, we, we have a tendency to, again, in evangelicalism, to really build on personalities and, and build on um, making ourselves great. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's something to learn in, in Bob and really not wanting that. Um, even in his, uh, his kind of collection of works to his, his wife, he knew that he was a smart guy and that uh, people were going to be interested in his thought. Uh, I mean, even in his diary, uh, he would write when he was very young, uh, girls' names in uh, different languages, uh, so that way when people would go and read it later, that they wouldn't know what this girl's name was. <laughs> um, so he had you know, a long-term long crush that is just in Arabic. Um, we know who it is now. But. <laughs> so he was aware that, that he was brilliant and that his thought would be uh, of interest to others, uh, but he really he didn't see himself as someone who would be of in, in during uh, interest. Mm. So he thought maybe his, his contemporaries, his peers, would be interested in his thought, um, but, but not today. He didn't, yeah. he didn't imagine that. And, and part of that is the way he viewed theology. Right? He would not want us to stop with his work. Right? It's, it's on us uh, uh, New Age uh, neo-Calvinists to continue to do theology. We can't just stop at Bobbing. Yeah. Well, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this. So, um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I know you can handle it because it's kind of related. We're going to be going to ETS mm -hmm. in November, mm -hmm. and there are going to be all these academic theologians. And mm -hmm. so, what is it that you think would be Bavink's impression of academic theology in America today? I mean, he's, he certainly participated in academic theology in the Netherlands. Uh, so I don't think he would condemn us going to ETS or anything like that. Good. Um, I, I do think he would be critical of the performative nature of some aspects of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Twitter is a, probably a more profound example than, uh, than ETS, of, of you know, trying to gather a cult following to to your self. And even, you know, there, there are scholars all over the world who will comment on things that have nothing to do with their region or place in the world because they know that, um, you know, this thing is more interesting and will garner more likes and attention. Um, you know, meanwhile, their own congregation may be very well like, suffering because they're not attending to them. So I think he'd be worried maybe about 
uh, people desiring to have a cult following and desiring to uh, speak into issues that really are disconnected from their their everyday life. Um, I mean, he he would he traveled to America. He would write on American culture, um, but he really did that because vacationing in America was really rare at the time. Mm-hmm. And so you would you would actually tell your contemporaries what America was like. Um, and so he did a couple of lectures on on how interesting we were and, and rude and. Um, and he, I, I, one of his very insightful things about American culture that I think about uh, whenever I sit in a rocking chair, it's, <laughs> he talked about how the rocking chair is uh, is very American and couldn't be invented anywhere else. And it's because that we are a people who are even when we are resting must be in motion. Wow. And uh, yeah, that kills me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in, in terms of, of ETS, uh, I think he, he just wants to be careful about uh, how we're building our own kingdoms. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I had in mind, and just in terms of the state of media today and how that plays into theology and so forth. Well, um, I really am grateful to you and Cam for learning Dutch and for translating, because these, these two works have been very, very helpful, um, edifying to, to me. And uh, I would strongly encourage people to pick them up, particularly a guidebook for instruction in the Christian religion. If you want just a, a good summation of the, the Christian faith, even if you're not Reformed in your theology, there is so much there because of his concern about the the Catholic, small c, Christian church, it is rich. And um, you know this because I have said this, but the, the things that you admire about Bavink, those were among the reasons that I wanted you here. And uh, I see them. So thank you for your, your labors. Thank you for your time. And um, God bless you in your continued ministry here at Cairn, in your church life and in life all around. You're a good friend. Glad to have you as a colleague. Thank you, Keith. Really, really touched.